Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. I want to thank you for listening and ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate now to the show notes for this episode, where you will find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where fine podcast products are found. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts because that helps more people find our show. This week, I'm joined by Dan Huger, Acton's librarian and a research associate, and Dylan Palman, executive editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality and a research fellow here at Acton. Today, we'll ponder if there's real trouble brewing in the public school system and why American rhetoric is so bad. But first, I want to go to Afghanistan. Uh, August 15th, last Monday, was the one-year anniversary of the withdrawal of American forces from Afghanistan. A year on, well, there's really no way to sugarcoat this. Things are not very good in that country. Uh, We'll include a couple pieces in the show notes, including a, a very good reported piece from Audrey Falberg and Charlotte Lawson in The Dispatch about uh, people still struggling with the chaotic Afghanistan withdrawal and what is currently going on in the country, as well as another uh, good piece from the Morning Dispatch about the current state of the economy there, which is basically collapsed, uh, which is unsurprising, not just for the transition in terms of the kind of government that is in place in Afghanistan, but also in reaction to the return of the Taliban to power. A lot of countries shut off Afghanistan from economic transactions. So the country is struggling. Uh, All of that to me, largely unsurprising. But a year on, you know, we can also go back and we can link to the early discussions we had because when we launched this podcast, it was pretty much right around the time. I think we're about a year out from when we launched this podcast this was the main thing going on in the world. And we can go back and and link to some of those conversations. Do you think about what is going on in Afghanistan any different after a year's worth of time, after a year's worth of time? Do you have any different thoughts about the decision to withdraw from Afghanistan, if it was the right one, if it was the wrong one, if it was the right decision and just poorly executed? What do we think about the state of Afghanistan and that decision one year later? The Afghanistan withdrawal is something that happened about eight years after it should have began. Um, When President Obama was elected, he was elected in part to wind down this conflict, and that never happened. And there emerged this bizarre holding pattern. Uh, President Trump seemed very keen to unwind it, um, so much so that uh, folks in the Department of Defense were leaking (laughs) uh, information about this in an attempt to undermine that withdrawal. Um, And when Joe Biden, uh, President Biden assumed office, um, he he finally executed with what appeared to be very little of a plan. So is the withdrawal something that should have happened? Yes. Um, How and when it happened is, is a very different question. And one that I don't see people exploring nearly enough. We had a lot 
of excellent press coverage throughout the war in Afghanistan. The Washington Post had their very famous uh, series of stories on the on the Afghanistan papers when it came out. Um, it was very, very easy for your average American to be more informed than what it seemed like the Pentagon was as to the situation in Afghanistan for very many years. And what's most fascinating to me one year later is how little we're talking about this. This was the first sort of large scandal of the Biden administration. There were calls for uh, congressional inquiries. There were congressional delegations that went to Afghanistan during this withdrawal. And it seems that America has forgotten and it's forgotten the sort of unfolding humanitarian tr uh, tragedy. But it's also refused to do any sort of reflection on its own role. Um, and that to me is deeply concerning. I agree with you that the the idea of what Barack Obama was in part elected on being true. And, and one of the interesting things for me thinking introspectively is I was largely in agreement with all of that. Uh, and the whole thing managed to persist long enough to come up to the point where withdrawal was actually about to happen. And I had come around to thinking largely it was a bad idea by that point for, again, admittedly complicated reasons. If we had started the process of unwinding the American presence there shortly after Barack Obama is elected, I think we're having a different conversation. Whether or not the uh, fledgling Afghan government and the Afghan security forces would have been able to sustain themselves over a long period of time is, of course, unknowable and something about which we can offer some conjecture. But we do not know for sure what would have transpired. But we could have better prepared both the government and the security forces for that withdrawal. So I, I turn the question back to you, Dan, since you brought it up. Obama is elected – in 08 on a very much on a change agenda, part of that, a uh, big part of that arguably being changes in approaches to American foreign policy, the war in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan. And we have an interesting something to contrast it with there in that there's still an American presence in Iraq and it is a state with many problems but far more stable than what we have seen post the withdrawal of the majority of troops that were there than Afghanistan, which fell rapidly to the Taliban. Why do you think Obama was unable to begin that process of winding it down? And I, I'm thinking uh, – it popped into my mind a joke from uh, the comedian Dennis Miller that his, his belief always was, I have no idea what happens the day that you become president, but I pretty much think that once you get sworn in, you know, somebody comes in with a binder of like, yeah, here's all the info on how really bad everything is in the rest of the world, and it's sobering for that individual, and as a result, that's why you don't get follow-through on a lot of promises about American foreign policy. But why do you think Obama, with all the political cachet, with all the political capital he came into the White House with in the beginning of 2009, was unable to begin that process of winding it down. I, one, of the, one of the challenges is, is the thought that this was always a potential outcome. The Taliban was never defeated in the way that Saddam Hussein and the Ba'ath Party apparatus 
in Iraq was successfully dismantled. And the prospect of a return of the Taliban and a return to international sponsorship of terrorism was always very real. Um, and I think that nobody wants that on their hands. Nobody wants to uh, be a party to what very well may be a defeat. I don't think there was ever the sort of confidence in the government of Afghanistan that we had at various stages, although there were various stages of of, uh, of uh, deserved ill confidence in Iraqi governance. But it was never as persistent uh, as what we had in Afghanistan. And the situation was always tenuous. Um, one of the reasons that I think withdrawal would have been more favorable earlier is because the Taliban was weaker. Um, at the point at which we withdrew, the Taliban had already t retaken much of the country. Um, they were in a stronger position when we withdrew than they were in 2008. Um, now, whether they would have always in every eventuality regained that sort of strength, um, you know, uh, we will never know. This is, this is one, of, one of those sort of hard counterfactuals. But they certainly would have been able to exert less pressure uh, in terms of, you know, in under a month retaking the country um, than they eventually were able to do. Um, so, I mean, this is one of those things, you know, politics itself is, is more of an art than science. And I think, I think that is especially true in statesmanship um, when you have these questions. But we never had um, – Whatever one thinks of the initial intervention to, Af to Afghanistan, President George W. Bush had a very clear agenda about what he hoped to accomplish there, which was the destruction of the Taliban and the rebuilding of Afghanistan into a sort of model democracy for the region. Um, those hopes may have been misplaced, but it was a plan. Um, and since then, we have not really had a plan in Afghanistan. Um, what we had was a sort of holding pattern animated by the fears of a worst case scenario, which ended up being realized anyway. Yeah, I mean, my take on it is um, basically everything about it was tragic. Uh, the 20 years of occupation and war was tragic. We're talking 175,000 people died, the majority of which were civilians. Um, the withdrawal should have happened earlier, probably didn't for the reasons that Dan just mentioned, uh, that it was, you know, as we saw, uh, despite the fact that we could not have left, you know, done it in a worse way, um, the Afghan forces had no will to fight. In many cases, they didn't even bother to resist the Taliban. Um, it, it, Despite being supposedly well-trained and well-armed, um, it, it just wasn't something that they were going to fight and die for. Um, what we should have done then is accept the reality, which happened anyway, uh, which was that, unfortunately, the Taliban was coming back into power, find some ways 
to make it as peaceful of a transition as possible, find some ways to guarantee uh, some safer ground for women and minorities of uh, religious and ethnic uh, uh, types and give them at least just something, something better uh, for us having been there. Um, instead, uh, you know, we pulled out in in a way that was worse than the U.S. abandonment of Saigon. Uh, people were literally hanging off of our airplanes. Yeah, with some of the same imagery. Falling and dying. Um, people were passing their babies over the fence for U.S. soldiers to just take them away with the hope that they will live a better life. I cannot imagine. I'm a father of four. I cannot imagine doing such a thing. Um that is how desperate that we left them. Um, we left uh, U.S. citizens there. I mean, we didn't even succeed at getting all of our people out, not to mention we should have we should have had a plan, give like a year or two or whatever, get all of our allies out who we knew the Taliban would have no mercy for. Get all those people out, right? <laughs> you know, protect them as long as it takes to get the last plane out and then say, okay, you know, didn't work. You know, we're, we're getting out of here. Um, we did a drone strike and claimed that we killed some ISIS leaders only for a week or two later to come out and say, no, it was just all civilians, 10 civilians, seven of which were children, just murdered by a U.S. drone for no reason other than to pat ourselves on the back and say, look, we're still winning this war on terror, which obviously we're not. If anything, we're spreading terror. Um, a week ago, uh, we drone striked in Kabul, uh, an al-Qaeda leader. Now, thankfully, no civilians were killed uh, other than this man, um, possibly one of the people who planned the September 11 terrorist attack. Ayman al-Zawahiri, one of the top leaders right. of al-Qaeda. In, in no and, way and would, I, yes. would I defend uh, his innocence in any regard. But what does that say to the Afghan people? Uh, the U.S. is in no way respecting their current government or territory or sovereignty. What you're supposed to do in that situation is you talk to the government and you say, there is a person there that we want to try in our courts, right? That you make a deal with the government that's in charge. We didn't do that. We sent in a drone and we blew up this guy while he was standing on a balcony. Um, I don't see anything in terms of the U.S. learning any lessons policy-wise. Um, and as Dan mentioned, uh, I don't see anything as far as the U.S. public learning anything. In fact, I, I said last year, uh, perhaps even on this podcast, that I expected in about two weeks people just to forget about al Afghanistan altogether. Uh, meanwhile, the people there were starving because no one would trade with their terrible government. It is a terrible government. Um, they do terrible things. Uh the only thing worse than living under the Taliban is living under the Taliban and starving. We should find ways to trade with them, uh, to become some kind of economic partners with them. Maybe they might have less hostility towards us as a result. Who knows? But at least the people there, which we spent 20 years demolishing their country, giving them false hope for freedom and democracy, only to pull out overnight, uh, might still feel like, okay, at least the U.S. hasn't forgotten us. And I, as far as I can tell, I think they have every reason to think that we have. So I, this is interesting. I disagree with a lot of that. Uh, I think one of the key points I want to make is 
to defend to a uh, limited extent the Afghan security forces. The way that the Afghan security forces were set up and the way that they were trained, I think this gets back to a point that I think Dan was hinting at that I do largely agree with. Uh, They were trained to be a support force in conjunction with American military forces. They were never trained to be independent. They were never set up to be able to operate on their own. So in a way, when they are built on the support structure of American military force and that is just pulled away almost instantly from under them to expect that they are going to be capable and recognize their own capability to fight against a force that has basically been a professional fighting force for 30 years is unreasonable, which I think gets back to the point that I, I largely I think I agree with with Dan is in, in 2008, 2009. I've been saying for you know basically for the entirety of the Obama administration, at this point, I don't know what we're trying to accomplish in Afghanistan. I've come to believe that there are some things that I was all right with that I find it interesting that nobody was really able to clearly articulate. Um, I, I think at minimum, the status quo of what was happening in Afghanistan in the lead up to the withdrawal was one for me, personally speaking, was tolerable. And I think was sustainable. If we were going to have any kind of a transformation of Afghanistan, it was not going to be in 20 years. I understand the instinct of people to say, we don't like the fact that we've been there so long. Um, We've been in Germany ever since uh, the Second World War. We've been in Japan ever since the Second World War. We've been in South Korea ever since the Korean War. Uh, We were not incurring a large number of casualties there. Uh, We it was not an unsustainable situation. But because we did not, if again, if there was this desire on behalf of the public, which polling suggests that there was, to get out of there, I tend to believe that this is a strong opinion, very weakly held. And I think that is borne out in the reaction to what transpired when we withdrew from Afghanistan, which is public opinion almost immediately went from, yes, we want to get out to, but no, not like that. And if we had begun the process back in 2009 of starting to wind down our presence there, which would have included doing things like training Afghan security forces to be able to fight independently, which would have included giving them some of the technology and equipment that was going to be necessary for them to continue the kind of actions that they were doing in support of the American fighting forces that were there, we should have started doing that at that point in time. I think if we start doing that, I'm in a greater amount of agreement with you about the last you know, 15 years of our experience in Afghanistan. But because we didn't do all of that, I, I think it was, to me, incredibly irresponsible to just say – we're going to pull out anyway to believe that uh, as I've had some people suggest to me and I'm not saying you're suggesting this, but I've had some people suggest to me who were so ardently in favor of getting out of Afghanistan that no matter how bad or how horrible or how much an affront to the idea of, of human rights, what came after was going to be, it was just better that we were out of there. And I just don't think that that is true. I don't see the moral or logical reasoning in that to say that it's better to leave it to a government basically of terrorists um, who are going to immediately start terrorizing their own people 
on this idea of, and I, I'm trying to find exactly where this uh, this was. Oh, this great line from this piece in the Dispatch: "The reality now facing Afghanistan's women is one the State Department sought to avoid by putting economic and diplomatic pressure on the Taliban to form an inclusive government." Oh wow, big surprise! They didn't. They continued with what they've believed for basically their entire existence. We shouldn't be shocked by that at this point. The idea that we were going to pressure them into any being any less than what they are just strikes me as implausible. Well, I don't see how sanctions sanctions never get that done anyway. I mean, it's a bad means to the end. But to your broader point, I mean, I agree. That was that was actually kind of my point is that if we're going to get out, um, we need you know we need to have done it in a in a far longer way, you know, far more protracted way so that we can get people out safely. Um, you know, I mentioned that the Iraq, the Afghanistan um, security forces were not able to fight. You're right. Yeah, they weren't they weren't trained to be their own separate army. However, the messaging coming from President Biden was the exact opposite all summer. It was, oh, no, don't worry. Don't worry. They, you know, they got this. The Afghans, they're going to stand on oh, their great. own feet. Yeah. They're, they're trained by us. They're, you know, so that's more of the point that I was making is that um, the the reality and the rhetoric in no way lined up. And there's a hundred things we could have done better and should have done better and still should be doing better um, for these people whose lives we have radically altered, a generation of people. I mean, one of the people who uh, fell to his death from the planes was a, a 19-year-old soccer star. Uh, this is a, a man who had never known Afghanistan under the Taliban. Um that is someone who we had given him the hope of a different future for his nation. And when we left, we gave them no hope, right? There, there was no, hey, let's get you out. Let's resettle you. That's, you know, whatever. There, there was no compromise. There was no like, hey, Taliban, how about you have half the country and this other half of the country is a safe haven? For, you know, there was nothing like that. There was, there was, there was no attempt. Uh, there was just a really, really bungled overnight or, you know, over a few weeks sort of withdrawal. Um, and it was a mess and a shame and it's something we ought to be ashamed of. A lot of, I think, what looms over this debate is the legacy of, of, of the war in Vietnam, um, another war with a disastrous withdrawal um, that, you know, was very long-lasting, noble, ambitions, um, and one that sort of really colored a generation. And I think as I, as I notice in the conversation here, um, the passions here, I think are very unique to our generation. Everyone in the room here, uh, I turned 18, uh, the day of the September 11th attacks. I know many people who served in both Iraq and Afghanistan, um, I had, you know, um, folks I know who perished in both conflicts. Um, and it's a really, I think, a generational defining sort of conflict. And I wonder if perhaps President Biden's instincts were not honed by what was, you know, in, if not his generation, the, the generation immediate prior, how, how Vietnam defined that lens. And I think one of the things that people don't realize is there were 
what what happened in Vietnam happened because of policy choices made along the way. It was not inevitable. Um, victory was also not inevitable should a certain other con, uh, constellation of policy choices have been made. But I noticed in the, in the analysis of the withdrawal here, this is very similar. We did not have the process that we attempted in Vietnam of the Vietnamization of the conflict. And we, at the same time, uh, you know, were committed for a while at least to air support of South Vietnamese forces that we eventually uh, reneged on that commitment. Um, so there's, I, I think there's an interesting, there's an interesting way in which um, we sort of become prisoners to that history, and this is, and, and we reduce, we reduce the the idea that that failure was inevitable um, as some way to excuse ourselves um, from the responsibility for it. Now, none of us in this room were making the sort of policy decisions that could have impacted this conflict one way or the other. But I think it's very, very important that we have these conversations now because how this conflict is interpreted in the future will affect how we look at the next sort of analogous conflict. Just as Vietnam looms loomed large over policymakers' considerations in Afghanistan. Afghanistan will loom large over policy considerations in the future. And I think it's very important that we make a very frank assessment of mistakes that were made and while also realizing that none of this is inevitable and there may have been, if not a path to victory – a path that doesn't lead to sort of wholesale devastation. I think that's a really good point. And I think one of our failures, it's important to understand and comprehend history, but it's also important not to become a hostage to it. And we have this, I think, inability to delineate the difference between analogies and things being exactly the same. I think we see this in a lot of different ways. And one would be what Dan just pointed out, that when anything in a conflict that the United States is involved in starts going poorly, the word that immediately is invoked is quagmire, and it is a drawback to the Vietnam War. We begin to push all of it through the prism of the Vietnam War without doing what would be appropriate, which is making analogy to it. When you're making an analogy, you're recognizing that two things are different, that there are discernible differences between them, but you're trying to figure out what the common threads are. But we talk about it and analogize it in the way to in a way to suggest that they're basically the same thing and they're playing out exactly the same way, which I don't think is true. I think we see this also in the context of American political scandal, that it is all forced through the prism of Watergate. Not every American we, – we do this in rhetoric as well because we attach the term gate to every political scandal that we deal with, which is one I really wish we would get away from, although I you know, shudder to think what we might uh, – are we going to start attaching a lago to uh, all of them now? I don't know. Maybe, maybe that would at least get us away from – Gate being the term, uh, the word that we attach the, to the, the end Nixon of it. The Nixon quagmire in Water Alago yes. uh, was something we will never forget, Eric. Yes, it, it, it was a time. Uh, 
we, we, we force all of these current events through past prisms rather than trying to understand what happened in the past and apply what we've learned from that to the future. We, we seem to want to treat them as if they are exactly the same thing, and I don't think that they are. Dylan also made a really good point about the prevarications of the Biden administration in the way that they talked about this. Another one that has clearly come up, if you remember in the weeks following the withdrawal, the press conferences in which they would be asked how many Americans are remaining or still in Afghanistan. And the answer perpetually, day after day, week after week, was exactly the same. About 100, about 100, about 100. Turns out, we now know with some amount of confidence, there's about 1,000 people that got left behind. It was maybe if you start to total up each of those hundreds, maybe if they were talking independently about a different hundred people each time they gave that answer, then that's true. But we ended up leaving about a thousand Americans behind, which I I think this is probably – and I want to ask one more question before we move off of this topic. The area that there's broad agreement on, which is the somewhat unreasonable American public position on all of this, which is a desire to get out but to not have done it in this way. Uh, and, and that's where I think I default back personally to the, the status quo ante was preferable to what actually transpired. And we can have a conversation now, which is just alternative history about, well, if we had started the process of all of this in 2009, might it have gone better if we had done this or we had done that? The options to me that are on the table for consideration are what transpired and the status quo ante. And I take the status quo ante in all of that. That's my personal opinion. The one part I want to ask about before we move on, what extent do you think what did transpire in the way we withdrew from Afghanistan is the backdrop to what has happened with Russia and Ukraine, to what we are seeing now with China and Taiwan that set aside some of the personal opinions we may have about the policy decisions there. Disagree with this if you want to. I I think it was a projection of American weakness. And I think because American power has been the guarantor for a lot of places around the world, either through alliances like NATO or just independently, because that weakness was projected, you see a Putin who's more willing to do something like move into Ukraine. You see a greater likelihood of Xi trying to take Taiwan in the near future. How much of this was a backdrop and is now informing this, these current circumstances? I think with the Ukraine, you have a more immediate history. I mean, uh, Russia has has been in the Ukraine for a lot longer than Ukraine has been in the news in this latest news cycle. Um, you know, they invaded uh, Crimea, was this 2014, 2013? Mm-hmm. 2014, I believe. Um, so that's, that's an ongoing, you know, there was a diplomatic crisis uh, to try to resolve that. There was a diplomatic process that broke down. Um, I think whenever, when you have longstanding commitments as we have had to the Ukraine since the dissolution of the Soviet Union, as we have, um, in Taiwan since, uh, its very beginnings, um, and you see us 
renege and bungle uh, other longstanding commitments, that can't help if not embolden action, at least embolden perseverance and the notion that perhaps if we keep a sort of low-level conflict going for long enough, America will lose its nerve. So I think, I think there's something to that notion of, of, of a projection of weakness um, or at least a projection of, um, of a lack of will to see these things through to the end. And if you have nations that, you know, I mean, if you look at, uh, you know, Russia, this has long been a sort of uh, aspiration of Russian nationalists since the dissolution of the Soviet Union is to regather these things. This is a long-term, you know, centuries-long vision. And maybe, maybe Dylan can unpack a little bit of us for for us a little bit of that history there and this is um you know a long term you know remember that the government of taiwan is the successor government to uh the government that lost the chinese civil war that in a way that that is a frozen conflict or has been a frozen conflict for a very long time um so you have um, two nations in both of these situations that have been very persistent in their interests in achieving these geopolitical objectives um, that have been you know, just invested as invested as the United States. And when they see the United States waver in some other places, perhaps, you know, that's an invitation uh, that strikes them as an opportunity. Um, I certainly don't think it has helped. In the case of Ukraine, however, as Dan mentioned, there is ongoing conflict in history there. Um, I also think uh, Russia judged not just that the United States was, you know, in some way, you know, weak or not going to step up to the plate, but I think they correctly judged that NATO really was not going to. Now, in their in defense of Western nations, like the sanctions came fast and hard. Um, it's not let, that they haven't done anything. The Ukrainians have been armed uh, to the teeth uh, by NATO forces. Um, so it's not that they've done nothing. Um, but again and again and again, the Ukrainians have been appealing, come help us or let us join NATO. Um, and the answer has been no every time. Um, and yeah, maybe you combine those things. Uh, Russia just kind of having enough of eight years of conflict, uh, of a stalemate in the Donbass, um, and seeing, okay, things didn't go well for the U.S. They don't, they're probably not going to even just game theoretically. Do you want to risk getting the U.S. involved in a foreign military um, you know, conflict after Afghanistan, the Afghanistan withdrawal has gone so terribly um, in front of the entire world? Probably not. Um, and that was probably a correct judgment. Um, but I wouldn't, I think it's too much to try to say, well, because Biden bungled the Afghanistan withdrawal, Putin invaded Ukraine. Uh, that is, uh, there's, there's some steps missing there, I think. Um, and there's a whole lot of history missing, as Dan said. Um, I, I don't know that it's, super valuable to get into all that. But there definitely is, uh, uh, there's Ukrainian nationalism, uh, which uh, arose during the, the Russian Empire. And there's, of course, the idea of an empire, which still animates a lot of Russian nationalism, uh, or perhaps imperialism would be a more accurate uh, 
term to use. Um, this idea that you have all of these Slavic peoples united under one Slavic Russian state. Um, and so you have a conflict of visions that goes back centuries, um, and you have ongoing conflict uh, to, to motivate someone to say, well, I'm done with this eight-year back-and-forth civil war, you know, uh, that we've been funding and fighting. Um, what else can we get out of this? How can we transform the situation? I think also, though, uh, the last thing I would say is there is an interesting, so far anyway, an interesting parallel uh, analogy, uh, we should say, um, to the extent that Ukraine has been able uh, to, to some degree, fight off Russia. I, it seems that Russia expected this to go quick, and it has not. Um, they have taken some serious losses in Crimea last week, uh, in, or no, it was just a few days ago, uh, or yesterday, uh, in a terrorist attack or assassination, depending on her role, I'm not sure, but the daughter of one of the top uh, Russian strategists in Putin government was uh, murdered in a car bomb. Um, I don't condone that. I don't think anyone should. Um but it shows that this stuff is hitting close to home uh, in a way that perhaps uh, the Russians never foresaw. Um, so the the idea of the big world powers just owning the world stage and pushing everyone around, um, as was expected to happen in Afghanistan and did not happen as of a year ago, um, there's a story to be told in that direction as well. Let's move on to our next topic. So. A story in the Chicago Tribune caught my eye, and I apologize to all of our listeners for when this topic comes up, my Chicago-centric look at it as a former resident of the city of Chicago. But I think it is a really good example of wider trends, and it was a preview of the upcoming public school year in Chicago public schools. And it notes in there the problems that CPS is facing – uh, there are many. Among them, declining enrollment. Uh, Chicago Public Schools enrollment dipped 3% last year to 330,411 students. And that struck me because I remember, if you wind the clock back about 10 years or so, it was a statistic that I used in making arguments about the Chicago Public School System in particular and, and public school systems in general – that in CPS, which at the time was a system responsible for about 400,000 students, so let's make this about circa 2010, when uh, it would be 2010 when we produced this statistic, that it was a system responsible for 400,000 kids and uh, six out of every 100 would go on to get a bachelor's degree by the time that they are 25. 400,000, now down to 330,000 and continuing to decline. Contextualize that with the piece we'll put in the show notes as well from uh, my friends over at the Illinois Policy Institute that one-third of Chicago public schools, the individual schools themselves, are half full. Now, you would think the most logical thing to do there would be move some students from here over to this school, students from here over to this school so that we are operating schools closer to full capacity. Uh, but yes, keep in mind, so much of this is an employment program for the people involved in public schooling. It's a system that seems so often to be designed for the benefits of the adults who run it and not for the children who are supposed to be educated by it. Juxtapose this with what is going on in Arizona. 
Arizona just passed a universal school voucher program that gives parents access to up to $7,000 per student, money that they can take and send those kids to anywhere that they want to go. So the question that I want to pose is, is this a sign of real trouble brewing in the public school system in the sense of the withdrawal of students for other alternatives that are able to be withdrawn from the public school system for other alternative methods of education seems to be continuing and was, I think, accelerated by the last couple of years during the pandemic. Think of that as the unstoppable force. And the immovable object are the teachers' unions, who are the ones making sure that in Chicago, in this example, that schools that are half full remain open because consolidation of any kind would mean some kind of a reduction in staff when they're not going to stand for that. And when we're talking about limited public resources, what happens when this unstoppable force meets this immovable object? Yes, uh, that is my answer. Yes, I definitely think this is a sign. Um, And the pandemic especially uh, has really exacerbated problems that were already there, in particular with failing public schools. I I would distinguish there are good ones out there, um, but... Uh, there are good public schools and there are great public school right. teachers. We are, you yes. know, again, to be clear, and I think I'll stop me if I'm not speaking for everyone, we want to be very clear that we're talking about the problems in the system, not individual people. Yeah. Um, but I, I will go one step further and say uh, the teachers' unions are not an immovable object because at some point... Um, people will lose their jobs. Um, and that's not something I'm happy about. Um, I think especially if someone's trained for it, if they're talented to be a teacher, I hope they get that opportunity. Uh, but if the schools are failing and they do not have students, they will not get funding. They will not be able to afford those teachers. Um, one way or another, they will close schools and, oh, now those teachers don't have a job. That's one way to get around maybe the union contracts. I don't know. Um, but either way, they're losing. If they're down 20% from 10 years ago in terms of enrollment, um, that shows that competition is happening even where the teachers' unions have such a stranglehold on policy, right? Even in places uh, that are not like Michigan, where school choice uh, is, you know, just abundant. There's all sorts of options. Arizona is going one step further with vouchers, um, giving people their tax money back to spend on their child's education wherever they choose. Um, There will be competition. The result of that competition will not be the demise of public schools. It will be the demise of bad public schools. The good public schools, people will keep sending their kids to because they're good schools. Um, what I've never understood about these debates is why anyone would ever have a problem with that. Let's let the bad schools fail. Let's let people take their children, bring them to better schools so they can get a better education. I don't know the downside of that. I don't understand it. Um, I admit to my complete and utter ignorance of the reasoning of the other side in, in, in the sense of a non-cynical reasoning. So uh, I get the side of, oh, it's all about teachers' unions serving their interests uh, at the expense of children and whatever. Um, okay, that yeah, that makes sense. But I don't want to presume that is the only reasoning on the other side. But from where I'm sitting, I can't figure out any other one. There is the very old reason at the foundation of progressive education, which is that 
children are best educated by experts in universities, and particularly sort of laboratory settings, the University of Chicago, the early part of this century, or last century. Um, there's also the notion that the public schools are the locus of where you learn to be an American, that this is the normative experience that everyone should have. This came along with, again, at the early part of the last century, a sort of basic Protestant religious curriculum. And while a lot of things have changed in the progressive sort of ethos of what public schools are, you still have an ideological vision that education is something that must be oriented towards the good of the nation apart from the interests of children or parents and that there is a professional component to this, that there is a scientific basis in which education would happen. Now, all of the evidence we have is that if this is true, they're doing it very badly because the results are simply not there. Either these teachers have never been trained properly or they've never implemented the curriculum correctly or, you know, and this is where I would go along, is I would say education is, is an art and not a science and that there's no reason that there should be a one-size-fits-all model. And we have been based on that one-size-fits-all model. The, the apotheosis of that was during the George W. Bush administration with the notion of no child left behind is the notion that, oh, if we implement these sorts of curriculum boundaries, if we uh, interject a sort of bureaucratic model into our schooling, we can attain a result in which no child is left behind, that every child in every school is educated, that what we need is a more scientific and bureaucratic management. And I think that has been disastrous. And I think where you see public schools making inroads, particularly schools with very challenging student populations, it's in an increasingly differentiated models of instruction. You have the Grand Rapids public school system is one that has been transformed uh, from stationary, geographically defined high schools, middle schools, elementary schools to one centered around particular curriculum models, be they Montessori, particular interests, should they be, you know, you know interest focus, should they be arts or engineering. Um, so you see this innovation even in some public schools, but that requires a lot of shifting. That requires consolidation. And that requires uh, buy-in from a lot of people who aren't particularly incentivized to buy into those sorts of radical changes. You get to in there one of my objections to so much of the policy agenda of our nationalist conservative friends, why I think it is flawed, because you can look at the experiment with no child left behind, this empowering of education at a national level. And you know, I harp on Chicago public schools all the time. It is, I think, one of the worst and an absolute embarrassment in the results that it produces. But you can find, as we have noted, public schools and public school systems around the country that are still good, 
that are still doing their jobs pretty well. The idea that we should have a single policy originated from the Department of Education in Washington, D.C. to try to achieve some equilibrium here strikes me as wrongheaded and also impossible to achieve in the way that so many of these proposals that elevate the way we deal with all of our problems up to a national level that is going to treat California and Texas and Alabama and Massachusetts as if they are alike. They are not alike. And we should empower those individual states to do things in their own individual ways, to experiment in the way that Dan has described about Grand Rapids public schools. Well, I want to bring it back to something else, a quote that I heard uh, attributed to the neoconservative thinker Nathan Glazer, an observation that in the late 60s and the early 1970s, especially in major cities. And if we're talking about the failure of public education, we are largely talking about major urban centers, New York, L.A., Chicago, places like that where we see some of the worst achievement numbers among students. Glazer's observation about major urban centers at that time is that they chose, they made a political choice to stop doing the things that it knew they knew how to do well. Things like making sure the garbage was picked up. Things like basic public safety. Things like basic education. And they started to try to do things that no one knows how to do, like solving poverty. And if you follow the rhetoric of the Chicago Teachers Union, it is laden with the idea of education is the means to achieving all of these other ends like racial justice and social justice and the utter complete alleviation of poverty and redistribution of wealth, things that we can debate their merits and how to achieve them if we think we should. But they are not the purpose of public schools. And I think that is a significant reason why they have gotten worse. So Dan talking about you know, the failure to implement this curriculum, I think the curriculum that they have tried and largely been successful in implementing is one that is just not primarily about education, that it is doing, as Nat Glazer observed, trying to stop doing the things they knew how to do well and to start doing things that nobody knows how to do. And this is a very old problem. Remember, Dewey wanted what? Education to form citizens that education was to serve as the bedrock of our democracy. The reading, writing, and arithmetic were incidentals to this program. Um, it's very easy. We know how to teach reading. We know in Oakland, I think the public school district, there was a recent conversation about their abandoning phonics curriculum, even though it has led to gains in student literacy because the teachers don't feel as empowered to instruct because evidently the job is not to get more students reading, that there is some sort of esoteric thing that teachers are supposed to be doing that is not related to this. You have models, these extremely scripted direct instruction models that, again, there's lots of resistance to teachers doing. And, you know, if you don't want to do that sort of mass scale literacy, numeracy education, that's fine, but that seems to be what people expect of schools and they will abandon schools if their children do not receive that. 
Um, you have you know, increasing adoption of private education models, homeschooling models. You have an increasingly dynamic, even within those traditions, you have an explosion of new and interesting pedagogical models, be they sort of the reemergence of classical education, Montessori methods, all sorts of things. During aforementioned direct instruction, you have all sorts of innovations going on. None of that seems to be where the attention of people who should be invested in education is. They're invested in these social transformation projects. They're invested in their careers. They're invested in, uh, you know, a, a vision of what it is to be the sort of vanguard for a society. Their idea is that they are serving, if not as a replacement, as a vital extension of what the parent should be. They are not – this is something larger than teaching for many people in the profession. I think it's something larger for teaching for parents too though. To be – to to give a little bit of a defense here, um, not in the sense that you've mentioned. I agree that all those are problematic. Um, but in the sense that there is an aspect of schooling that is simply daycare. It is so the parents can go to work. Um, and – Parents do, in fact, need that. Children need good environments to go to, hopefully ones that are actually instructing them in those basic fundamental disciplines, such as reading, writing, and math, uh, from which they can learn everything else. Um, furthermore, there is uh, an aspect that, you know, what we have, depending on uh, the state or district's, uh, you know, rules, um, in some cases we have more of, uh, you know, a public option for schooling, uh, to use a healthcare uh, analogy, uh, for better or worse, um, that it's one among many choices. I do think it's important that we have a choice publicly provided available because one of the biggest criticisms against, you know, private schooling or schooling school choice, whatever, is well, you know, your vouchers only going to get you so far or whatever, and really, it's just you know the rich get the best education for the kids. What people don't seem to realize is that the rich always get the best education for their kids, no matter what the policy circumstance is. And the question is, how many? the The more important question to me is, how many choices do the poor have? Um, they need to have something. Truancy is a crime, um, right? Um, so they they have to send their kids somewhere. There should be a public option as long as we're requiring that. Um, but we need to think broader. And we need you know, one thing, uh, a more progressive approach, perhaps, uh, to thinking about school choice. Um, partly would be, as Dan mentioned, ways in which you can reimagine and reshape, restructure public schools to be more adaptive, more personalized. Um, but in general, uh, in the last, I'd say, you know, 10 or so years, uh, I've come across this term uh, neurodiversity um, to refer usually to uh, folks on the autism spectrum. Um, but I think we should expand that. Um, now, I, 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 don't, I wouldn't want to detract from its use uh, as far as, you know, normalizing the inclusion of people uh, with autism spectrum disorder, whether it's in the classroom or workplace or whatever. But I'm a quirky guy. Um, like, we are all neurally diverse. Um, I have strengths and weaknesses intellectually. Um, and I remember being a kid that was really good at math. And basically, in my public school, having no encouragement 
to excel or achieve. It was just, hey, you got an A, good job. Meanwhile, I got so bored that after three years, I became a slacker because I was like, why try? You know, there's, there's, no, there's no reward for doing better. I can get a B and have a lot more fun. So why don't I just have a lot more fun? I mean, that was the calculation I, I remember making. Um, so thinking along those terms and that we have an incredibly neurodiverse population, an incredibly neurodiverse population of students in our elementary and secondary education systems. Let's find a way to reimagine them uh, that actually is personalized towards their strengths, is personalized towards helping them with their weaknesses. Um, And in doing so, you might find that suddenly the public schools are producing better results. And if they're producing better results, people aren't going to be looking around at what other options do they have because they'll be very content with the public school in the first place, in which case people who support public education for any number of reasons uh, will have all the support they need for it to continue. I think we're going to end up tabling our final topic here because I want to make a couple points on that because that that was great. The first is the my kids' school, and they go to a, a private Catholic school. And would we would think about if you had a student who really excelled, they were just you know knocking out all the work, they were doing it very easily. What did you do with that student? You moved him up a grade, and. That was understandable, but the problem with that is it treats their capacity in one or two subject areas as being equal capacity in all subject matter areas, whereas you know, I always did much better in English than I did in math, and even in the subcategory of math, you know, I, always, I think this is always true, that you were either really great at algebra and not great at geometry or vice versa. Uh, there's obviously exceptions. There's people on you know the far ends of the distribution of the bell curve there. But I have found generally if you were good at one, you were probably not that great at the other. And what you may be doing by moving that student up an entire grade is, yes, meeting them closer to where they are in their capacity for something like uh, English or, or social studies and also giving them much bigger of a challenge in math than they can handle. And what my kid's school does is they have flexibility in between with individual subjects in grades that they will move students up a grade level or perhaps back a grade level in an individual subject without moving them from fourth grade to fifth grade entirely. And I can't believe, A, I hadn't thought of that before, and B, why doesn't everybody else do something like this? Because it seems like a much better way to handle when you have a student that excels in one area but may not be excelling in all areas. I think it speaks to, I think we've brought this up on this podcast before, this poor understanding we have about intelligence, that we think of it in the IQ version of it, this idea that some people are just brilliant and that implies this equal capacity at all things, whereas no, people do have things that they specialize in, that they are much better at than other things. And rather than thinking about these individual capacities, we reduce it down to this idea of smart people and not so smart people, genius and not genius people. You have people who are geniuses at certain things. You know, Albert Einstein, I think we can recognize that he was a genius when it came to physics. Please don't go look up some of his political beliefs. You know, just because he was a genius in one area didn't mean he had particular insights into the human condition or the world in other areas. Right? I think, the, again, the resistance that you would get in public schools to that is because that system is so entrenched and there is such an instinct to protect that system at all costs. A point on what you said about daycare. I agree entirely. 
there is an element of all of that. And I think one of the things that frustrates a lot of parents out there is when that became so very obvious over the last couple of years during the pandemic that you, know, you would get these objections from teachers when you would make that kind of a point that I'm not supposed to be your child's babysitter. I'm not supposed to be their psychologist. I'm supposed to be their teacher. And well, you know what? I'm sorry. You are kind of those things too. That's part of the job. And I think you knew what you signed up for when you signed up for it. I think that really is one of the true stress points in this conversation is the inability for everyone to recognize that, yes, that is a part of all of this too. And I understand and sympathize with where I think teachers are coming from from this because they have the car dealer problem, right? You buy a new car. And you love it. You may tell your friends, you may tell your family that you love the car, but you don't call the dealer up and tell them on a regular basis how much you love that car. But if you buy a lemon, you call the dealer and you're on them immediately. And when teachers say, I wish parents were more involved, the problem is what more parental involvement is going to look like is often dealing with problems. That is going to be the intersection that parents are going to have. Maybe parents should be more cognizant of that fact and more complimentary of great teaching when they see it. I think we certainly could see an increased capacity for that. But I think there's also a recognition that needs to happen that a lot of times what you're going to hear is complaints. And we need to find a better way for those constituent groups to work together. And I just don't think the current structure of either public education or the unions is lends itself well to that kind of collaboration that needs to happen if we are to understand public education as an extension of the role of the parents that also involves some of these qualities like, yes, it is a place that my kids can go during the day so that I can go to work. Let's call it a wrap there. Thanks so much for listening to Acton Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look in the show notes for a link for where you can subscribe directly to Act and Unwind, or you can just search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this program. Thanks to Dan. Thanks to Dylan. For the Acton Institute, I'm Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week.